I feel at least I need to say, you may or may not notice that I don't have much of a voice today or it will change back and forth like uh, one of the Brady boys on the Brady Bunch every once in a while. But hopefully we'll get it together throughout this day. I assume, I'm not sure, but I assume sitting in the rain on Monday morning trying to hunt deer didn't help at all. I don't know, but I'm sure it didn't help. Certainly didn't help me find a deer. And uh, my wife sounds worse than I do. I have no idea how she got it, but she sounds worse than me. And Ted sounds worse than both of us, so I don't even know where he got it, but it wasn't from us. There's a great line that I'm sure you've heard somewhere along the way, maybe have seen on the back of a bumper sticker somewhere, probably have heard in a church bulletin or at a church, that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You heard that one? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. That's a great phrase. And it's true, we're not perfect. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Just when you think you're getting close to being perfect, God gives you kids. And just when you think you're really getting more perfect, your spouse or your mate or one of your children will let you know you're not there yet. And we are forgiven. I hope I never get over the fact, every time I share communion, I'm amazed by the fact that God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. No matter what we've done, where we've been, how bad we've been, how terrible our journey has been, when I come to faith in Christ, he wipes my slate clean. I love that. It's one of the most amazing aspects of Christianity, that when I come to faith in Christ, it doesn't matter where I've been, what I've done, how bad I have been, how large my slate may seem, how many sins are on that board of life, when I come to faith in Christ, embrace him as my Savior, ask him to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, he does. And I love that aspect of Christianity, that he forgives me and wipes his slate clean, that I can be forgiven in Christ. That's why Paul said, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. As he tries all the way through the New Testament, describe what it's like to come to faith in Christ. It's a great phrase. The problem with it is that it doesn't stop there. We aren't perfect and we are forgiven. The thing we need to remember every once in a while is that it goes so much further than that. Salvation is only the starting point in our spiritual journey, not the end product. Salvation is the starting point in our spiritual journey, not the end product. We turn from our old way of life, we walk toward Christ, we step over the line, we receive him as Savior, we repent of our sins, and we invite him into our life, and now then is the beginning of our spiritual journey. But sadly, through the years, I've seen a lot of people think that it's the end product or the end of their spiritual journey, sitting around waiting for the next bus to heaven, when there is so much more than that. One writer says, we are forgiven so that we can be different, we are justified so that we can be sanctified, we're sanctified so that we can become like Christ. And although that may seem impossible and a far stretch, that's the ultimate goal of spirituality is not heaven. The ultimate goal of our spiritual life is to be like Jesus. One of the most amazing byproducts of our spiritual journey is heaven. But the ultimate goal of our spiritual journey is not heaven, it's to be like Christ. And over and over again you see that all the way from the beginning to the end, That coming to faith in Christ is the beginning point of our journey with him, not the end product. God's ultimate desire is that we're transformed by faith and become like Christ. One of our mission statements here, and you'll hear a lot about it next Sunday night, is that we desire that people become transformed by faith, grow in wisdom, and intentional in relationships and service. If all we have done is bring you to faith in Christ and leave you there, we've not finished our task. We're delighted when we do that. I see Christian organizations thrilled with the fact that they brought hundreds of people to Christ. 
They've shared the story. They've said the good news and they've invited them to come to faith in Christ. They raise their hand or sign a card or make a commitment of some kind, but then leave them there. And if we just simply bring you to faith in Christ and leave you there, don't take you any farther in this journey with God to help you to become like Christ, then we've not finished our task. Because one of the ultimate responsibilities of a spiritual unit like ours is to help people to come to faith in Christ and then to grow in that relationship in Christ so that we can be transformed by faith and become like Christ. What is the ultimate goal of spirituality? John, the apostle in the New Testament, was really bold, especially as he gets to 1 John, when he said, okay, now you've come to faith in Christ. You're walking in the light. We have fellowship with one another. I need you to know that now that you're in this journey with Jesus and you're walking in the light as he is in the light and you have fellowship with one another, let me remind you, quit sinning. Matter of fact, don't sin. You're walking in the light. And the light and the darkness don't have fellowship with one another. So if you're walking in Jesus, you need to be reminded every once in a while that that walk with Christ means you quit sinning. Now, thank God he has verse 1, 9 in there. If we do sin, what? We come and ask for forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. And the issue is never about how much sin I can get away with and still seek forgiveness. The Apostle Paul says, I never keep sinning so that I can take advantage of God's grace. Some of you grew up in environments, and I want to be careful with what I say, but some of you grew up in environments, and maybe even in your own home or your life, where you couldn't partake of communion until you came and did confession. And then you came and you confessed that you could participate in communion, but then you went right back out and did the exact same things you did before you came, knowing that you could come back next week, come to confession and have communion, go on with your life. That was not God's intention. Paul said, I never, ever want to take advantage of God's grace knowing that he's going to constantly forgive me. That's why when I come to faith in Christ, I quit my old way of life. I quit doing those things. I walk away from that. I walk toward Christ and I keep walking in the light as he is in the light. And what he reveals, I get rid of. What he shows me, I deal with. What he asks me to get rid of out of my life, I do. My growing with Jesus means that I get rid of the stuff in my life that either pulls me down or pulls me back, and in doing so, I begin to notice that I'm sinning less and less. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that I'm sinless. But in my walk with Christ, as I'm walking in this journey, and I recognize that salvation is only the starting point, and I keep moving in my journey with God, the more and more I walk with him, the closer to Christ I become, the more like Christ I become, the less and less I seem to have this problem with sin. Or the less and less I notice I'm struggling in a particular area. Paul's journey, as he describes it in Romans chapter 7, the very things I want to do, I don't seem to do, and the very things I don't want to do, that's what I end up keeping doing, is never an excuse to keep struggling with sin. It's admitting the struggle, turning to Christ for help, and get rid of the junk that pulls you down. So often I've heard that section of Scripture used to say, see, Paul struggled with this stuff, I'll always struggle with this stuff. The very things I want to do, I don't do. Paul said the same thing. The very things I don't want to do, I do. Paul said the same thing. See, we're the same. Paul didn't share that so that we could say, well, let's just give up. Thank God there's a God. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to salvation. Paul shared that as an honest admission that we're always going to struggle with these issues, but it's never an excuse to keep sinning. It's a recognition that I am struggling with these issues, and my only hope is Jesus. 
And I come to him in faith and I ask him to continually process me and cleanse me and I get rid of all the junk that he identifies and I become more and more like Christ in my journey with him. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and knowing that for the last four months or three months we've been in Nehemiah, you're probably saying to yourself, what does this have to do with wrapping up Nehemiah? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you. How many of you did what I said yesterday in the phone tree and you picked up, picked up your Bible and you opened it up and you read Nehemiah chapter 13? How many of you did that? Four of you. Thank you, sweetheart, for being one of those. Four of you. You get the prize, honey. Here. On your way out. I always obey. Oh, she always obeys me. I love that. <laughs> Every Saturday, as best as I can, I have it sent to my phone now because before I'd find out it didn't go out and I would ask people, did you hear the phone tree? And they said no. I went, oh, I know it went out, but now it comes to my cell phone, so I know it did. I will tell you what the section of Scripture is going to be so you can prepare for it. I'm not going to read all of Nehemiah 13 this morning. I'm only going to allude to a few verses and not of the context. But if you read like I did a few months ago, or even the last few weeks, Nehemiah 13, you're wondering, how's he going to end this series? And as I read that chapter where Nehemiah walks in after having been gone for a while and recognizes how far away from God they have become, that they've walked back on their commitment to him, all the things he pointed out they said he wouldn't do anymore, now they're doing. And Nehemiah takes some pretty radical action. Matter of fact, when I read it a number of months ago again, I looked at that piece where it says they married people outside the faith and he beat them up and pulled out their hair and I thought, well, I'm moving on. I'm not going to deal with that. And then I kept hearing this voice in my head and I'm sure you're wondering how many voices do you hear in your head? There are a lot. I honestly could ride in the HOV lane myself because I have so many voices in my head. (laughs) Everybody in Butler is going HOV lane. We don't have one of those in Butler, right? It is on Route 8. It has an arrow going either way. I just take it and go. (laughs) But I kept hearing God say over and over again in my head, I want you to deal with this passage of Scripture, but I want you to deal with it in light of the issue of purity. And then I began to read it over and over again, and I realized Elijah or Nehemiah is dealing with some pretty sensitive issues here. But he's dealing with the people who keep going backwards in their commitment to God who had made a commitment to him, who had confessed their sins, who promised that after reading the word they would follow God with everything they had, who continued to walk backwards and then wondered why they constantly found themselves in slavery. Nehemiah says, you can't keep going this journey. And he takes some pretty radical action in this section of Scripture. A few weeks ago, we read chapters 9 to 12, and you remember we talked about those long services they had, two hours, four hours, half a day, a quarter of a day, and they read the word, and... Every time they read the word and they heard it, they repented of what they heard. They recognized, wow, after hearing the word of God, they didn't have the luxury that you and I do with 27 versions of the Bible and a number of them in our home. They they just simply came to church to hear it because they couldn't carry one with them. And so when they heard Ezra read it and Nehemiah read it, especially Ezra the priest, they recognized, wow, we've really strayed away. We need to come back to God. And they they do. And they promise God that they'll follow him. They commit themselves to his word, and they commit themselves to holiness. In chapter 10, they just list these, some of these things that they commit to. We'll obey your word. We won't marry unbelievers. We'll keep the Sabbath holy. We'll bring a portion of our income, at least a tenth, to the house of God, and we'll keep the house of God pure. Now, that's not necessarily a complete list, but it's the things that you see pointed out in these last four chapters, where God says, through Nehemiah, as he's preserved the word, These are the things that I want you to identify, and so he does. They recognize that, and they make a commitment to God that they'll keep their ways pure. 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the ceremony begins. We read about it a couple of weeks ago, and we ended with a great song of celebration. And, and they did that. They brought out all the choirs. They stood up on top of the wall. They celebrated with music of every single kind, every instrument under the sun. And they continued to read the word of God. And as they did, they recognized again. Wow. We're, we're not where we were going to be. We're not what we promised we would do. We're not walking this walk that God has asked us to do. And, and, and so they again make that commitment. Nehemiah has been away for a while, walks back into the scene in chapter 13, and recognizes what they have done. How they neglected the house of God, how they neglected giving their offerings, how they failed to keep the Sabbath, and how they participated in mixed marriages. And in every single area, Nehemiah confronts the issue and takes pretty radical action. In the 13th chapter, verse 7, let me just give you an example of one of them. He learned that the priest had allowed Tobiah to take one of the rooms or utilize one of the rooms in the temple. It was preserved for the uh, purity of the house of God. Tobiah was the one who made fun of them originally for building the walls and said, remember, a fox couldn't go on it and it would fall down. And the priest just brought him in and said, here, take a room. And, and Nehemiah found out about it. He threw him out. I gave orders in verse 9. I was greatly displeased, verse 8. I threw Tobias' household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and then I put it back, all the equipment in the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now, when I read that, I, I, and, and you know the Bible, as I'm sure many of you do, you can't help but think of that section of Scripture in the New Testament when Jesus walked into the temple, saw all kinds of things going on, and turned the tables upside down and threw the money changers out. When you're a kid reading that for the very first time, you wonder, what was he upset about? Were they selling pizzas in this auditorium? Were they selling pizzas in the lobby? Weren't they allowed to sell stuff after church? We do it all the time, so you don't know what to do with that. And then when you look at the whole context, you recognize when he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So often churches sometimes stop with a house of prayer, and that's wonderful. That's not the intent. The intent is my house should be open to everybody. You're now making them go through your hoops. They aren't allowed in unless they pay your price. And you're closing the doors of heaven in men's faces. And Jesus was livid and turned that place upside down. When you look at what Nehemiah does here, you can't help but think he's responding in a very similar way with what they have done with the tabernacle of God. In their case, especially in the Old Testament, it was meant to be preserved and kept holy. And the priest had allowed Tobiah to come in, lose one of his enemies that that was one of the ones who had been putting them down all along to come in and occupy one of the rooms. Nehemiah responds, throws him out, purifies the rooms that he stayed in. I thought about that section of Scripture. I was immediately drawn to the New Testament when it referred to the fact that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God no longer resides in a building, although sometimes I know we wrestle with that. Is this holy, isn't it? God no longer resides in a building when, when we all leave, God isn't here waiting for us to come back next Sunday. We all leave. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, by His Spirit, resides in us. We want to use it well, and that's a whole other sermon that we'll give next year. But our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we come to faith in Christ, He resides in us. I open up my life. I say, Jesus, I want you in. We tell that to our kids. We teach it to our students. Invite Jesus into your life. Invite Him into your heart. Take Him with you everywhere you go. Christ now dwells in me. Paul was amazed by that. Christ in me? The hope of glory. 
If we're not careful, if we continue our journey without recognizing that not only are we the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're to continue to keep that temple pure, then we'll allow things into our lives or things to creep into our lives that ought not no longer to be there once the Spirit of God points it out. We'll also find, if we're not really careful, that we don't even give him access to all of our life. Jesus, you can come into the living room. We'll have a relationship on a regular basis or a semi-regular basis, but I don't want you to access into my bedroom. I don't want you to access into my man room or whatever that may be. I, that you, you can come into my life. I love having you there. That's never his intention. He wants access to all of it, every fiber of your being, every room in your spiritual house. And we walk in our life not even thinking about that or letting things into the temple of the Holy Spirit that ought not to be there. And we all have these people that have given us the list of what those things ought not to be or shouldn't be. I'm often fascinated when I've heard it through the years that, that we often think that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and, and we often think of alcohol and smoking, both of which are dangerous and damaging and should not reside in the temple of the Holy Spirit. So often we quit there. I've known many who claim to have faith in Christ to know that Jesus resides in them and they certainly stay away from those things. We don't do that, I don't do that, don't do this. But then they allow anger, bitterness, and gossip to reside in their lives and never come to the realization that those things can be just as damaging, just as dangerous, and just as deadly. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear. But they rip people to shreds with their words. And, and they think that they don't go together. I can give you the list. I've been given a list when I came to faith in Christ of things now the body of the Holy Spirit dwells in me and I'm the temple of God so these things ought not to reside in you. But I can do better than that. I can give you this and I can just tell you, he'll point it out to you. And I can tell you to allow the Holy Spirit to so saturate your life that he'll tell you what to get out. He'll tell you how to walk this walk. And he'll do the cleansing and to be honest with you, it's a whole lot better if he does it because then it's not what somebody else thinks I should get rid of. It's what Jesus says to get rid of. You see, transformation is taking place when I learn that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give Christ access to every area of my life. And I begin to get rid of the stuff that he points out. And I cleanse it for his use and his alone. Nehemiah dealt with the issue of the Sabbath. There are a lot of people claim to know faith in Christ, yet Sunday seems to another day. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir. You're all here. But there are a lot of people who say, well, Sunday, Sunday, and they give you all kinds of biblical arguments. It's just another day of the week, and I can worship God anywhere I go, and I can worship him on the golf course or in the woods and hunting and all that kind of stuff. I often want to ask them if they do do that, and most of them say, no, but I can. Many claim to come to faith in Christ, but they know Jesus, and they love him, and and they have crossed the line into salvation, but either Sunday just seems like another day or maybe their time with God in this context, in this setting, in a corporate way seems only an obligation, but never becomes a desire to really meet the living God and allow him to work on our lives in every single area of our lives on a regular basis, whether it's a daily experience or this wonderful corporate one that we celebrate on Sunday morning. You see, transformation is taking place when I see corporate worship as something I look forward to and wouldn't miss for anything. Nehemiah dealt with the issue of finances. You're not bringing what God desired. You're not bringing a tithe. You're not bringing what he asked you to bring to the house of God. And there are a lot of people who sit in churches Sunday after Sunday, receive spiritual food and nourishment, never participate financially. Or if they do, 
It's not near in keeping with their income as God's word commands. It fascinates me. I mean, there's not a one of us who would ever go to a restaurant, enjoy the meal, and not pay for it. Any of you do that? I mean, you go to a restaurant. It was nice, but I, next time I'll come back. I hope it's better. I'll pay you next time because I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a little bit better. You know, and you not only do you not only pay for the meal, you give them a tip. And if it's my wife filling out the bottom, she gives them a great tip. But there are people that come to church Sunday after Sunday, receive spiritual nourishment that don't participate financially at all. You've all heard the Pareto principle, right? That's the one where 80% of the people do, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work, 20% of the incomes comes from, or 80% of the incomes comes from 20% of the people there. All kinds of those stats that say the majority of incomes comes from a minority of people and a minority of people do a majority of the work. I, I don't have any idea what our finances are because, I, I mean, I know what it is. I just don't keep track of anything. I don't know what anybody does or anybody gives, and I don't ever want to know. I know that some pastors do. I don't and never will. But we did find out in a survey that we recently did for budget planning and budget preparation that they have discovered that we have 40% of the people who attend Community Alliance Church who either give nothing or less than $10 a week, which means on tied basis alone, you're only making $100 a week. 40% of our people. Transformation to me is taking place when I realize that everything I have belongs to God. And he expects me to respond and expects me to support what he is doing. And so I do. Not out of obligation. God loves a cheerful giver. I do it because I'm out of obedience to him. I recognize my stuff isn't my own. And I respond according to what he has done. That's why a tenth is about ever a number. He says later in New Testament, even beautiful ways in three or four chapters, according to your giving, according to your income. There are many people in regards to marriage who claim to have faith in Christ but never really understand the consequences of marrying a non-believer. Or they allow things into their home or to their marriage to destroy the sanctity of that commitment. Throughout the years, we've all heard, and I grew up in the 50s where it was always about, you know, Catholics and Protestants shouldn't mix. My mo- <laughs> I don't know why I always use my family as examples. If this is being recorded, this is Pastor Ted Harris speaking this morning. <laughs> Denny is so sick he cannot be here. I already did it in the first service, so I might as well say it in a second. Remember I said last Sunday, Monday, we get together and my family and, and my brother shares things that we didn't know growing up. You know he did it again this week. I'm sitting there going, are you serious? And my dad's looking at him saying, you did? So I might as well say it. My mother paid me not to date Catholics. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, you're going, you've got to be kidding. I couldn't believe I said that in the first service. But I did. So I might as well do it here because it's going to get around and I'll get emails about it. I was dumb enough to take the money. I'm okay. Somehow we made it about religious tags. We made it about Catholics and Protestants and Jews and on and on the list went. It's not about religious tags. Jesus just simply declares, and Paul does as well, what on earth does a believer and a non-believer have in common? 
There's no light there. There's always that constant mix. And, and I know stories, and I have great stories of people who've come to faith in Christ after marriage when one was a believer and one wasn't. But I'm telling you, it's almost always weighted heavily on the other side. And I've said to them, God's word says to you, don't marry an unbeliever. And I told you not to do that, and you did, and now you come to me saying, can you fix this? I'm telling I don't. I shouldn't say this as a never thing. I don't remember the last time that I had somebody come to me and say, I'm struggling with a couple areas, can you help us out? It's usually the bottom has fallen out, we hope you can fix this. That's why when our kids were dating, and I, and I know we all had those debates as to when, but I, I've said to them, look, you're at the marrying stage right now. And God's word pretty clear about believers and non-believers. So my encouragement to you, based on the word of God, is date believers. Because I'm telling you, 35 years of ministry has taken its toll on the amount of people that come to me saying, can you fix this mess that I've created because I disobeyed God's word? So Nehemiah deals with it. He said, keep the, God says in the word, keep the marriage bed undefiled. Keep it pure. Don't let anything into the mix that doesn't belong. He said, don't commit adultery. We'll talk about that next spring when we do the Ten Commandments. And the word adulterate means to add something to the mix that doesn't belong. It's not always just even a person. Add something to the mix that doesn't belong there. God says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. What consequences are you going to pay when light and darkness have something in common together and then you wonder why? And so Nehemiah deals with this issue. Things that we allow into our lives, whatever they may be, either willfully or subtly, that have an impact on a relationship that God wants us to have in him because his desire is transformation, becoming more and more like Christ. That's why he says over and over again in New Testament, Ephesians, get rid of all this stuff, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. Colossians 3, rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. 1 Peter, rid yourself of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy of every kind. Get rid of this junk. Don't let it there. Source said family video, which is one of the places you can rent videos. In the area, I shared that there are over 700 stores in, in the country somewhere. I don't know where they all are. I don't rent them, but you know, 700 stores all over the place. Butler is the number one store for the rental of pornography. Paul says, get rid of this, John. Don't let those things infiltrate your life. I'm not saying it's that for anybody in this room. But he just says over and over again, get rid of this stuff. We live in such a fallen, sinful world with no hope of recovery. And God in his amazing grace and what we're going to celebrate this month rescued us and redeemed us and set us free in Jesus Christ. He sent his one and only son into this world so that we can have life and have it forever. And then once I cross over that line and come to faith in Jesus, I want to make sure that I do everything else to keep walking in that journey with him. Matter there be these four areas that he points out here or a dozen ever more that he points out in here, when I hear what the word of God says and I know what it means to come to faith in Christ and I know what it means to be transformed in Christ and I know what it means to grow in him and I recognize that there are things that are pulling me down or pulling me back, I don't want to do that anymore. But Lord, I'm making a commitment. What you point out, I will eliminate. And in a world in which we live, that becomes more and more difficult to do. That's why it has to be such a conscious effort. 
This is the price for sin. And this is the plea for purity that God points out over and over again. A small group watched the Truth Project, and it is a great, great resource. Over 400 of you have seen it. On number 11 on labor, you may or may have not seen this, but it was a poignant three minutes that he points out in light of this context that I cut out and wanted to share with you this morning, and then I'll move us into communion. And what you just heard in those three minutes. You want to know what truth is? You want to know what the absolutes are? They're all here. All I've done this morning is giving you three or four issues and examples out of Nehemiah 13 to wrap up this series. That's so much more than that. But if we choose to ignore it, we pay an enormous price. We choose to embrace it. It can be amazing as we become more and more like Christ. One of the sections of Scripture that we always share prior to communion is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul paints a beautiful portrait. He said, I wasn't there, but I've heard this. He said, the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. He said, this is where you get life. And he shared it with his disciples. He said, I'm giving my life for you. It's a bigger story than that that I'll never take time to share this morning, but the price of sin is death, and Jesus is essentially saying, here, I'm offering my life in your stead. And so he offers it to all of us. After supper, he passed around a cup, and he said, this is a new covenant. Bought and paid for by the price of my blood. And he reminds us through that, because obviously Corinthians or Hebrews tells us, and the Old Testament as well, without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, but he offered his own so that we could have forgiveness and have it forever. And so he offers it to us. And many times we stop there, and it's a wonderful portrait. But he goes on in that section of Scripture, he said, wait a minute, before you eat the bread and drink the cup, you ought to examine yourself. And if there are areas in your life that you have allowed to creep in or have left unresolved or aren't dealing with or just are dominating your life, you need to deal with that. You need to look inside before you eat, before you drink, and just make sure that you're dealing with that stuff. If you don't, I will, God said. That's why some have already died and some are sick. Whole another sermon on the two together, and it's not the point of the sermon. It's not the point of that passage. The point is you've got to deal with this stuff. You can't ignore it. And so every time we share communion, almost every time, I, I, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And God just wonderfully, a few weeks ago, laid this out in front of me so that I could share it with you this morning before we take communion. These guys are going to sing a beautiful song, and uh, they're going to come down. They're going to pass out the elements. They're all very simple to take, help each other. The bread and the cup, take it out of the same tray and pass it around so everybody can share it. And, uh, and then I'll come and lead you in those elements. But during that time, would you just do what God's word says? Examine yourself, get rid of stuff, make commitments to him. Not like these guys that weren't determined to keep it. But you really do want to keep it. And I want to walk in holiness as he is holy. And so you talk to him this morning and let him talk to you as we share these elements. Father, I thank you for this unspeakable gift. It's overwhelming. It's hard to describe. It's hard to believe that you were willing to give your life so that we can have life. I thank you not only for life, but for the power of your spirit that reminds us how to live this life that you've called us to. So this morning, you've heard our hearts and our words as we have made commitments to you. I trust that you will continue to work in us as we grow in that relationship more and more like you every day. 
I thank you for your love and your grace and your sacrifice that we hold in our hands this morning that reminds us, even as Brad said so much earlier, how deep and passionate your love for us is. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Take the bread and then the cup. I love Paul's words, probably his writings as much as anybody's. Peter's my favorite. But Paul said, we don't have to continue to struggle with this anymore. We have victory in Christ. And I trust that we can celebrate that way this morning.